This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, quarantines have tripled and cases of COVID in schools are slightly higher in the latest report from the New Orleans Public School District. And two charter schools find themselves in hot water after failing to conduct the required background checks on employees. New Orleans City Council may launch an independent management audit into utility company Entergy after several high-profile failures in recent months. And the city is looking into a controversial ankle monitoring system for defendants in criminal and juvenile court. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, up first in education, cases of COVID-19 connected to schools went up just a little bit this week, but quarantines tripled. The district announced more than 3,400 educators have received vaccines, so that was good news. In regular policy news, two charter schools find themselves in trouble with the district after failing to properly conduct background checks on employees. Let's go first to COVID. Is there any indication of why cases and quarantines went up? We don't quite know anything about why cases might be increasing. Um, I know obviously we, you know, there are concerns around the country about the variants, but also at the same time, people are finally getting vaccinated. So we don't know a whole lot about the cases. What I did notice about the quarantines is uh, there's roughly a little over 300. And two of those are at one school with 95 people quarantined and one school with 85 people quarantined. And those seem to be instances where two or three or four students have tested positive for the virus. And thus they set off kind of a, a domino effect of multiple classes or school buses being quarantined. Okay, so not a huge leap after the Mardi Gras break that we were right. sort of it, it anticipating. Seems so, and I, you know that's tracking with the city results too. So right, um, our positivity rate is like one point five percent or something. I looked at this week's numbers, but it is definitely tracking lower. Right, and at the same time, the CDC just updated guidance for vaccinated persons went from six feet to three. I think this is going to impact schools and, and teachers. How are the new guidelines affecting schools? Yeah, so I know the district is reviewing the um, spacing issue, the six feet to three feet. And then uh, I think the biggest change so far is that if you're a teacher who's been fully vaccinated, and I believe two weeks out from your last vaccine, you no longer have to quarantine if you are a close contact of a, a student or another staffer who's test positive for the virus. So that's really going to change basically everything. Um, and, it, and it does, I was speaking with a teacher friend this weekend and she was talking a little bit about how, you know, this is going to put, you know, a lot of onus on teachers who are fully vaccinated. And so hopefully that doesn't happen to a, an extreme extent, but those teachers who are fully vaccinated are the ones who are going to be able to remain on campus when other things happen. So it's going to be interesting to watch that play out. Do you know of any teachers who have opted to stay virtual that haven't necessarily needed to, but would continue to do so just out of a, an abundance of caution? I know I know one personally who just didn't want to be back when we didn't know so much, yeah. um, though she is back now in a hybrid schedule. Okay. 
So other school news this week, the district issued two warnings around background checks at KIPP and Singleton Charter. These are state mandated laws. What what happened? Right. So schools are required to conduct background checks. Um, obviously, we don't, you know, we want our schools to be safe places. So there's a kind of a whole host of reasons why you cannot be employed in a school uh, from very serious reasons down to some more, you know, minor issues or ones that aren't necessarily related to child welfare, um, you know, potentially involving drugs or things like that. And so what happened in these two cases is Kip Nuance failed to background check or or properly read a background check, it looks like is the possibility, and was employing to someone who was ineligible under state law. Uh, so the district found that. They said, you need to, um, actually, you need to fire this person by the end of the week. And um, Kip says, well, the district says that they're following those rules. Kip is kind of fighting back and saying they don't believe they should have received this warning, but they won't tell us specifically whether or not they let the person go. So that's a little bit unclear. And then at Singleton, the issues uh, seem to be much more varied, but they also did employ someone who couldn't, uh, or who was ineligible to work in a school. Um, and the NOPD has told us these cases are related. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's possible this is, you know, a school support staffer who worked at various campuses or maybe a bus driver or substitute teacher or something like that. How did these problems crop up? Were they just routine audits? So it's not exactly clear. Singleton had been having an issue with background checks. It looks like the district was um, involved there in December and noticed that they hadn't done background checks for all of their employees, um, that they were missing for some of their employees. Mm -hmm. And so what appears to have happened is that they came back to check in March, and this is when they found uh, a lot of other issues at Singleton. But I think what probably happened since these letters were issued on the same day is that they realized that whoever this person employed at Singleton was was also employed at KIPP. And we don't 100% know that it's the same person, but we do know that, as NLPD said, these cases are, quote, related, unquote. So they were issued what's called a level one warning back in December, is that right? Yep, Singleton was, yep. So that's that's sort of a, a lesser warning. And, and it sort of sounds like what sometimes happens there is if, if you don't pro- provide what the district considers sufficient ev- evidence that you have um, remedied whatever problem is identified in the level one warning, they'll kind of come back and do a deeper dive. And that's what happened here. Right. Okay. I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, Marta. Given that these this seems to be um, an issue, do you think that it's laziness in the HR department? Is it a cost issue of, of having to pay for the background check? Does that work with a, a cooperative agreement between the school district and the whoever does the, the background check? This has absolutely been an issue in charter schools for years. I mean, I checked in background checks to our website and just ton of school articles popped up. The issues in the past have ranged from, you know, hiring private companies to do them that wouldn't unearth everything to schools not routinely, you know, checking annually if they have them. Um, I would su- suspect that cost is one of the factors involved in this. Um, I think the other factor, and I know that I saw it in other charter school years back, was that you know they always did a background check for their employees when they were initially hired, but they never did a you know a, a second check or a third check, however many years down the line. And this particular school, Warren Easton, uh, this must have been five, six, seven years ago, they decided they would recheck every employee every three years. So I don't know how many other schools have any 
you know, similar systems like this. So that, that could potentially be what the issue was here, that, that something popped up. And, and this could be another issue, you know, that we see come up from time to time um, that's sort of an economies of scale issue, right? Because, you know, in a traditional school district that's centrally run, you have an entire HR department. Whereas, you know, in, in some charter schools, especially like single, single site charter schools, non-networks, um, you might have an HR person or just an administrative employee who does the HR as part of their job. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like chief operations officers might be handling this and, you know, not anyone with necessarily HR experience. Or they have HR, they, have, they stub out for HR companies. And it's another hurdle to overcome where probably hiring might be, it's a difficult process no matter what industry you're in. It's onerous. And then this adds just another hurdle to it, but. Right. And we've also seen reforms in that area where, you know, some people are using private companies in the past. And then I I don't know if the district mandated this, but generally most schools now have moved to using the state police system. Um, Mm. And I think that that was a more thorough background check. And it's the state that requires this. It's not, it's a, it's a state law. Yeah. State law says you are not allowed to employ anyone who is, you know, convicted, been convicted of, pled guilty to, or pled no contest to a, a host of a list of crimes. Okay. That's, it's a fairly wide-ranging list, which actually brings me to, to something else that I thought was interesting in your story. You interviewed uh, a civil rights lawyer who, um, who, had also, who was also uh, involved for a long time in the, in the long-running consent decree litigation against the district and the state over special ed. Uh, but he, he sort of, he had some interesting and nuanced comments about this. On the one hand, he felt that in general, it sounded like he felt that in general that this background check law was was good, that it was uh, that it was prudent for schools, and that schools should be following it and doing regular background checks. On the other hand, he seemed to suggest that that maybe some of these requirements or some of the crimes that make you ineligible could be relaxed somewhat. Um, because, you know, having, having been convicted of, say, a drug crime 10 years ago, it sounded like, in his opinion, shouldn't necessarily make it so you're ineligible to work at a school. Right. And then he, he also brought up the fact that, you know, sometimes parents miss out on opportunities if they have convictions in their past. And I don't know what exactly that would look like for a parent to be on campus with those priors, you know, with prior issues. But, you know, he did bring that up as a, as a barrier for parent participation as well. And just to be clear, this is not for like, it's not simple drug possession. It's no, no, no. Yeah. High degree. <laughs> right. It is a list of crimes that the law, you know, takes more seriously than, than something like simple possession. But they're, but on the other hand, they are not all violent crimes. They're not all, they're not all sex crimes. Um, and they're, they're not all crimes that involve, you know, something like child abandonment or something like that. Okay. Thank you, Marta. Great reporting. Thanks. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. 
Hi, my name is Chris Adulam, and I am the social media manager for The Lens. Just as a community is strong through its citizens, the strength of The Lens lies in a highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. To learn more about our work and the people who do it, sign up for our newsletters at thelensnola.org newsletters. Thanks. Michael, City Council President Helena Moreno wants to open a comprehensive audit into the management of Entergy New Orleans after a flurry of controversies in the first few months of this year. Most recently, the company revealed that it had unnecessarily cut power to upwards of 17,000 New Orleans customers on Mardi Gras night. I want to go into what the explanations were of that eventually, but what kind of audit is Councilwoman Moreno looking for here and how did that start? Yeah, so, so like you said, um, you know, 2021 has been a little bit of a tough year for Energy New Orleans um, in terms of its relationship with the city council, um, uh, its regulator. There, there have been a, um, a series of incidents that have required council attention. Like you said, there was the big news about the outages on Mardi Gras night. There were extremely high bills in January um, that the city council pulled together an emergency meeting for. They have joined a federal complaint, a $1 billion complaint um, regarding Entergy's management of a nuclear plant. But all of these things, you know, all of these separate incidents, you know, the council has taken some action on, you know, opening up an investigation into that specifically or holding a meeting, you know, over that specific issue. The audit that's being suggested here is more of an overall look at how Entergy operates. So, you know, are, is its uh, managerial structure good? Is, it, is the decision-making processes within the company proper? Is there a proper emphasis on reliability for customers versus profit-making? You know, all these bigger questions, these overall questions about how the company is run. So, so the suggestion for this audit actually came from a, a a community group called Energy Future New Orleans Coalition. Um, and, and that's built up of a lot of local affordable and clean energy advocates. So the Alliance for Affordable Energy, the Sierra Club, um, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. I mean, this is probably the loudest voice, the loudest community voice when it comes to um, Energy New Orleans. Um, and, you know, they're the ones that, that have basically, they, they wrote a letter to um, uh, Council Member Helena Moreno, who chairs the Utility Committee, saying that the number of mistakes we're looking at here doesn't just require us to look at each of these mistakes individually. Now it's time to take a broader view of the company to see why these mistakes keep on, keep on happening. They pointed to um, something that was done, a similar audit that was done in Hawaii um, with their utility company, um, which they say resulted in you know $20 million of savings by just adjusting certain managerial managerial practices. Wow. So basically what, what happened is that council member Helena Moreno wrote back to them and announced during this uh, meeting this week that she agreed that this audit was necessary and that they would, you know, start the process to move forward with that. As we covered in the story, how that's actually going to play out procedurally, we still don't totally know. Um, we expect that it'll require some additional council action, uh, an additional council vote on this. But the, the council member has, you know, committed herself to, to, you know, going forward with this audit. So we'll see uh, where it goes from here. Okay. Oversight of this, of this company is in their hands and she is the president of the council. Do they ever routinely, like every decade or something, uh, do an audit like this or is this unprecedented? 
Well, the audit that, you know, that, that the Energy Future uh, New Orleans Coalition is suggesting, I, I don't know um, anything similar um, that has happened, at least in the time I've been reporting on Entergy. Again, what I've seen is that when they do look into Entergy practices, it's usually about a specific problem. Um, and there, you know, there's reporting requirements, there's auditing re requirements. I mean, it's not like Entergy New Orleans is just doing whatever it wants without, you know, telling the city council anything. Um, but, you know, I think that some of the things that they're looking here aren't just quantitative. There are some qualitative things as well. So um, the coalition wants to wants the audit to include corporate culture and how corporate culture reflects the need to address climate change. Right. So inside the building, you know, how much of how, how much of a priority is climate change, for example, that's the type of stuff that I don't think that the council is regularly doing. Just in the past couple of years, the council has authorized a number of investigations into ener energy. There was a fairly big one after the uh, power outages uh, after Hurricane Isaac in 2012. You know, there was an investigation into the paid actors scandal. Um, there's been investigations into how they're spending money on maintenance. Um, but yeah, as Michael mentioned, they're typically fairly, you know, discrete um, issues, you know, how did energy react to the specific problem in the specific instance? But I, yeah, this seems much more comprehensive. And, and the closest thing I could think of that it that gets to this level, of, you know, this 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 sort of level of, of thoroughness would be something like the, you know, when they were looking at uh, resetting energy or uh, power rates a couple of years ago, and they were taking a broader look at energy's finances. But this sounds like it even goes beyond that. Okay. Yeah, again, I think this gets a little bit past the numbers of it, which I, I think is, is mainly the focus of what they've done in the past. Um, you know, again, when, when we start talking about like corporate culture, you know, you know they, they want this council to review um, salaries, are salaries too high? You know, um, you know, what's their decision making process when there's an emergency, things like that. So um, again, this is just because because when, when they do investigate and bring up these specific issues, there's often a, a technical or administrative fix to it right so oh these outages happened because there was a technical failure in x and now we're going to do an annual review of this piece of technology um, but i guess what the coalition is saying here is that now it's a broader issue with this company that these issues just continue to happen okay and presumably there are national firms that come in and that do exactly this like the one you cited in hawaii i'm sure there are companies that that do this who pays for that? Is that New Orleans City? We do that? Taxpayers? The, the city maintains kind of a, a team of utility consultants. Um, you know, when it comes to the electricity grid, it's really, really complicated and you need specialized expertise. And the way that the city has dealt with that traditionally is by keeping this roster of consultants um, that do do this work nationally. And so, you know, I, I would expect that the work would, would probably go to them. Those contracts are far and away the most lucrative awarded by the council, adding up to nearly $7 million a year. Most of those costs are paid by ener energy, but they're ultimately passed on to ratepayers through their utility bills. The most recent problem that Entergy experienced, that we experienced in New Orleans, was Mardi Gras night. Did they explain what happened that night? Yeah, the, the big headline story, which we've written about, is that on that night, Entergy New Orleans cut power to thousands of customers um, that they didn't actually have to cut power to unnecessarily you know left people without power for about two hours you know it was a cold night i think it caused a lot of anxiety for a lot of people but yeah so basically the explanation i think it, it helps to go back to what caused these blackouts in the first place 
So New Orleans, you know, we have a lot of blackouts in this city. Uh, most people know that. But for the most part, you know, almost all the time when, when there's a blackout in this city, it's due to a failure with distribution equipment. So uh, a, a utility line will go down or someone will drive their car into a utility pole or there'll be a hurricane and that'll blow down infrastructure. And so most of these are, are accidents or failures in the system. What happened on Mardi Gras night was that the company actually was intentionally uh, shutting off power, which is what it was supposed to do. It just did too much of it. So, so basically what was going on that night um, is there was a, a big winter storm um, and, and unusually cold weather throughout the region. Um, so the big headline nationally was in Texas, where this problem was really the worst. So what happened in, in Texas and in, in, in Louisiana as well and other places in the region is that the cold weather was causing energy demand to skyrocket. So people are trying to heat their homes using more and more energy. At the same time, the cold weather was taking a lot of generation online. You know, this is especially true for Texas. A lot of these power plants weren't weatherized to, to operate in freezing temperatures. So those had to go offline. Now, on an electricity grid, generally what happens if, is if customers are trying to pull more energy off than is being supplied onto the energy grid, it can cause these really huge catastrophic long-term um, problems, the types of problems that you can't just flip a switch to, to, to fix. You know, you're talking about transformers that can even explode and, you know, different, you know, pieces of the electricity grid that you would have to replace altogether. So what electricity grids will do before that catastrophic, you know, event happens is they'll intentionally start shutting off energy to some customers to keep that demand below where supply is. In New Orleans, that, that decision isn't just made by Entergy New Orleans. We're part of a larger um, electric system um, called the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, MISO. And that decision comes from this kind of, you know, this, this higher level um, entity um, who will then tell all, all their member utilities like Entergy New Orleans, hey, you, we all have to start shutting down um, you know, we all have to start shutting down some demand or the entire system's going to go bust. And now, not only do they tell the companies when they have to do this, they also tell them exactly how much power they have to cut. So for Entergy New Orleans, they were given the directive, you have to cut 26 megawatts of power. Now, what the company ended up doing is cutting 105 megawatts of power. Um, so four over four times the amount that they were instructed to shut off they ended up shutting off because of, you know, failures in, in this system. This type of event, they say, hasn't happened in 20 years. So I think some of these mistakes might just be, you know, kind of rust buildup over time, you know, not really going through this process. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they shut off, you know, we're talking about a little over 17,000 customers that lost power that night that did not need to. Okay. And have you had any response at all from Entergy New Orleans about this idea of an audit? Not yet. We're still in the very, very, very initial phases here. I mean, the, the, basically, Helena Moreno, who does have a lot of power in this situation, has said she wants to go forward with it. But the details of what that audit would look like, really all we have is the letter that was sent by this community advocacy group. Um, so I, I don't know if there's like enough details on this yet, enough clarity on it yet for Entergy to really um, be commenting on it. So. Um, I think that'll just depend on what the council does from here. Okay. All right, Michael, thank you. Thank you, Karen.
Nick, New Orleans is looking to set up a new ankle monitoring program for defendants in criminal and juvenile court. Practice is controversial. Previous attempts at electronic monitoring in New Orleans have been plagued by allegations of mismanagement and ineffectiveness. What is electronic monitoring? So electronic monitoring is, you know, normally we think of it as as an ankle monitor that gets um, put on a defendant um, in criminal court or or in juvenile court, um, in this case as well, that will track a defendant's whereabouts Usually in a pretrial setting, so maybe as a condition of bail, when they pay, uh, when they pay bail and get out, the judge will say, "Okay, you can go, but but you need to be wearing this." And they can kind of be set up in different ways. They can have sort of time constraints on them, where you need to be in a certain place at a certain time, like a, a curfew. So it, so maybe it'll send an alert if you leave your house after ten o'clock or something. They can also put uh, sort of restriction zones on there. So if you have a restraining order against against you for from uh, a certain person then then they can um program that into to a monitor and and get a notification if you've uh you know gone in that person's uh, neighborhood or home or however however they want to set it up so there's a variety of different kind of ways to utilize these but that that's kind of the basic idea is is that some notification gets sent out to law enforcement or, or some monitoring uh, entity um, if you violated uh, kind of the terms of, of the condition of release. Okay, so why are they looking into why are they looking to implement it now? Well, the first I heard about it was at a community development meeting about a month ago, and it really came up in response to uh, frustrations from the police chief who said that he's been rearresting the same individuals over and over, that there's this sort of revolving door in, in juvenile and criminal courts where people are getting arrested, getting released on low bails, as, as he put it, and that they are continually rearresting the same people. And so this was one of the things that came up as sort of a response to that. The, the kind of two main goals that, that people who advocate for electronic monitoring talk about are one is is reducing recidivism, so it would be sort of the, the kind of thing that, that the police chief was talking about, it, getting people, preventing people from committing more crimes when they're out on bail. And then also as a way to lower the jail population um, as, a, as an alternative to detention, so people who might not otherwise be let out of jail um, uh, because they're too much of a risk for one reason or another um, could be if they had this electronic monitoring program and judges might feel more comfortable letting letting people out. So those are sort of the two reasons that the city has given for, for wanting to set this up and has kind of have been the reasons uh, for, for having, having the programming in the past. Right. So what's happened, because this is not the first time that this will have been a, a system in place in this city, what happened with previous systems? Yeah, so there have been a few iterations. I think going dating back to around 2004, actually, um, there was initially a private company that was monitoring, uh, that was doing all the monitoring and um, uh, managing the program. And eventually, uh, they started getting criticized that they weren't sort of immediately responding to violations. They weren't informing judges uh, quickly enough when um, someone had violated. And you know, I talked to. To Rafael Guayanechi, who's the, who's the he runs the Metropolitan Crime Commission. He's a big advocate, but he was for for electronic monitoring. He was saying with a private company, he came to the conclusion that 
they actually have a financial incentive not to report violations because if someone gets remanded or sent back to jail and t- gets taken off the electronic monitoring, they're losing money. Um, mm. They're often getting paid on a, on a per person basis. So that, that I think was, was one of the reasons that that particular system ended. It then moved to the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office where it was housed from 2010 to about 2016. And that program also, uh, that, that was for both criminal and juvenile court. Um, and it got a lot of criticism as well. Um, the inspector general put out a report basically, you know, blasting it, called it um, almost a total failure. Um, and that also had, it had to do with monitors not keeping good, good records of, of, of the people who were monitoring, not um, programming in restriction areas to the, to the um, monitors so they weren't getting notified when, you know, if, if someone violated. And then also, yeah, not uh, efficiently responding to violations. So there are a couple, uh, or you know, one particularly high-profile instance of a pizza delivery man who was killed, and the the perpetrators were on ankle monitors. The alleged perpetrators were on ankle monitors, and had actually gone out the, the previous night, and the monitor had um, not gone in and arrested them. I think they had maybe returned home and. Um, so, so they got some heat for that, and eventually um, they they disbanded the program in in 2016. They basically said we're not interested in doing this anymore. It's, and then there was one in juvenile court between 2016 and 2018, and that, that there were I think similar problems. It was managed through the juvenile court and um, contracted out. And I know they had a lot of technological issues. The monitors weren't working, and that was uh, eventually abandoned. Also, it sounds like one of the flaws to oversimplify, perhaps with the system is that it's only as good as the monitoring of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And, you know, pretty much everyone, whether they're very enthusiastic or very skeptical of electronic monitoring, sort of agrees that it all comes down to sort of execution. And I think, yeah, one of the uh, one of the problems has been, I think there hasn't always been clear expectations of both monitors and law enforcement of what to do necessarily if there's a violation. You know, these things can only transmit so much information when there's a purported violation, but there's all sorts of reasons from technology failing to, you know, let's say a kid, you know, is, it, it appears to be violating, but is at his other parent's house where he's, you know, maybe allowed to be, but the monitor doesn't know that. So there's all these kind of nuances that, that can easily get lost. And if there's not really clear procedures on how to proceed in each of these cases, I think both both defendants and the court and law enforcement can all, all get really frustrated. So how are the proponents of this new iteration explaining why this one is going to be better? I think what they're saying is like they've learned they've learned from the mistakes of the past and you know, in a, in a presentation to the Criminal Justice Committee recently, they they laid out sort of all the things that they need to um, consider before before really digging into this. Um, and in addition to sort of, as I said, defining clearly the procedures by by which uh, the law enforcement is notified and and the actions that the monitors take, they also want to really limit the good scope of the program. So so have a really targeted population for who's going to be put on mm-hmm. ankle monitors in the first place. Um, and then also really limiting the duration for how long they're going to be on these. So I think they're trying to set up a fairly a fairly targeted and limited operation, which I think they they believe 
along with sort of more stringent um, uh, procedural guidelines will, will be more effective than, than it's been in the past. Okay. And what's the price tag and who pays? Uh, uh, to be determined, I think the previous program ran somewhere in the $400,000 range uh, annually. I think a, a lot of that cost comes from the actual personnel costs, the monitors who, who need to track these individuals and, and paying, paying their salaries. I have gotten through a public records request one quote uh, that the, the city got from a, a monitoring company, um, and that costs around $4 a day for the monitor. And then there's a monitoring cost as well, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that includes, whether or not the city would have to provide additional monitors um, or whether or not the, the um, company would would be fully responsible for that and would be contacting law enforcement uh, directly if mm. there's a violation. And then in terms of who pays, you know, in some previous iterations, the the cost has been passed on to the defendant. Um, that's something that, you know, it, it can be quite burdensome. It's something that uh, the public defense attorneys in New Orleans are, are very opposed to and has been criticized by, by the chief judge of criminal district court as well. So it's hard to say. I think, I think that if the if they're in favor of a monitoring program at all would prefer that it be fully funded by by the city so one potential is is uh you know some sort of grant or outside funding source uh i think i think it's really uh, still still to be determined okay what are next steps the commissioner of the office of criminal justice coordination tanisha stevens said she wants to get the program up and running in juvenile court first um, and that would probably happen this summer, she said she's hoping. Um, so I imagine <clears throat> there will be discussions with the city council about funding um, and what the city council can kind of like scrounge together and allocate for the program. And so I, ma- I imagine there will be uh, uh, those discussions happening uh, relatively soon. Any comments from Jason Williams' office on this idea? Yeah, uh, he is in support of it. Um, he said in a statement that he thinks it's a, it's a, it's needed in the city, and that I, I think, you know, generally he's been in favor of it as an alternative to detention. I mean, I will say that, that one of the things that is sort of latent in these conversations is that there's there's some tension between the idea of of electronic monitoring for people who are already getting out of jail and who maybe the, the police chief wants to put on ankle monitors uh, in order to, to stop them from committing crimes and using ankle monitoring for people who are currently in jail who could be potentially let out. When they start kind of hammering out the details of who should be put on these ankle monitors, I think that that's some, uh, you know, a point of tension that, that uh, will sort of emerge because as an abstract concept, you can have both things, but really when it gets down to it, you're either going to be placing people who are already out of jail on these ankle monitors, or you're going to be letting more people out of jail um, by putting by, by utilizing the system. So so we'll see how that, how that ends up playing out. Okay, great, Nick, thanks. Yeah, thank you. All right, gang. Y'all All have right. a good week. You too. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. you. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>